Chapter Sixteen of When William Came by Saki. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Andy Minter. When William Came by Saki. Chapter Sixteen Sunrise. Mrs. Kerrick sat at a little teakwood table in the veranda of a low-pitched teak-built house that stood on the steep slope of a brown hillside. Her youngest child, with the grave natural dignity of nine-year-old girlhood, maintained a correct but observant silence, looking carefully yet unobtrusively after the wants of the one guest, and checking from time to time the incursions of ubiquitous ants that were obstinately disposed to treat the tablecloth as a foraging ground. The wayfaring visitor, who was experiencing a British blend of Eastern hospitality, was a French naturalist, travelling thus far afield in quest of feathered specimens to enrich the aviaries of a bird-collecting Balkan king. On the previous evening, while shrugging his shoulders and unloosing his vocabulary over the meagre accommodation afforded by the native rest-house, he had been enchanted by receiving an invitation to transfer his quarters to the house on the hillside where he found not only a pleasant-voiced hostess and some drinkable wine, but three brown-skinned English youngsters, who were able to give him a mass of intelligent first-hand information about the bird-life of the region. And now, at the early morning breakfast, ere the sun was showing over the rim of the brown-baked hills, he was learning something of the life of the little community he had chanced on. "'I was in these parts many years ago,' explained the hostess, when my husband was alive and had an appointment out here. It is a healthy hill district, and I had pleasant memories of the place. So when it became necessary—well, desirable, let us say—to leave our English home and find a new one, it occurred to me to bring my boys and my little girl here. My eldest girl is at school in Paris. Labour is cheap here, and I try my hand at farming in a small way. Of course it is very different work to just superintending the dairy and poultry-yard arrangements of an English country estate. There are so many things—insect ravages, bird depredations, and so on—that one only knows on a small scale in England, that happen here in wholesale fashion, not to mention droughts and torrential rains and other tropical visitations. And then the domestic animals are so disconcertingly different from the ones one has been used to. Humped cattle never seem to behave in the way that straight-backed cattle would, and goats and geese and chickens are not a bit the same here that they are in Europe, and of course the farm servants are utterly unlike the same class in England. One has to unlearn a great deal of what one thought one knew about stock-keeping and agriculture, and take notes of the native ways of doing things. They are primitive and unenterprising, of course, but they have an accumulated store of experience behind them, and one has to tread warily in initiating improvements. The Frenchman looked round at the brown, sun-scorched hills, with the dusty, empty road showing here and there in the middle distance, and other brown, sun-scorched hills rounding off the scene. He looked at the lizards on the veranda walls, at the jars for keeping the water cool, at the numberless little insect-bored holes in the furniture at the heat-drawn lines on his hostess's comely face. Notwithstanding his present wanderings, he had a Frenchman's strong homing instinct, and he marvelled to hear this lady, who should have been a lively and popular figure in the social circle of some English county town, 
talking serenely of the ways of humped cattle and native servants. "'And your children? How do they like the change?' he asked. "'It's healthy up here among the hills,' said the mother, also looking round at the landscape, and thinking doubtless of a very different scene. "'They have an outdoor life and plenty of liberty. They have their ponies to ride, and there is a lake up above us that's a fine place for them to bathe and boat in. The three boys are there now, having their morning swim.' The eldest is sixteen, and he's allowed to have a gun, and there's some good wildfowl shooting to be had in the reed-beds at the further end of the lake. I think that part of the joy of his shooting expeditions lies in the fact that many of the duck and plover that he comes across belong to the same species that frequent our English moors and rivers. It was the first hint that she had given of a wistful sense of exile, the yearning for other skies, the message that a dead bird's plumage could bring across rolling seas and scorching plains. "'And the education of your boys? How do you manage for that?' asked the visitor. "'There's a young tutor living out in these wilds,' said Mrs. Kerrick. "'He was assistant master at a private school in Scotland, but it had to be given up when, when things changed. So many of the boys left the country.' He came out to an uncle who has a small estate, eight miles from here, and three days in the week he rides over to teach my boys, and three days he goes to another family living in the opposite direction. Today he is due to come here. It's a great boon to have such an opportunity for getting the boys educated, and of course it helps him to earn a living. "'And the society of the place?' asked the Frenchman. His hostess laughed. "'I must admit that it has to be looked for with a strong pair of field-glasses,' she said. "'It's almost as difficult to get a good bridge for together as it would have been to get up a tennis tournament or a subscription dance in our particular corner of England. One has to ignore distances and forget fatigue if one wants to be gregarious, even on a limited scale. There are one or two officials who are our chief social mainstays, but the difficulty is to muster the few available souls under the same roof at the same moment. A road will be impassable in one quarter, a pony will be lame in another, a stress of work will prevent someone else from a coming, and another may be down with a touch of fever. When my little girl gave a birthday party here, her only little girl guest had to come twelve miles to attend it. The forest officer happened to drop in on us that evening, so we felt quite festive. The Frenchman's eyes grew round in wonder. He had once thought that the capital city of a Balkan kingdom was the uttermost limit of social desolation, viewed from a Parisian standpoint, and there, at any rate, one could get café chantant, tennis, picnic parties, an occasional theatre performance by a foreign troupe, now and then a travelling circus, not to speak of court and diplomatic functions of a more or less sociable character. Here, it seems, one went on a day's journey to reach an evening's entertainment, and the chance arrival of a tired official took on the nature of a festivity. He looked round again at the rolling stretches of brown hills. Before, he had regarded them merely as the background to this little shut-away world. Now he saw that they were the foreground as well. They were everything. There was nothing else. And again his glance travelled to the face of his hostess, with its bright, pleasant eyes and smiling mouth. "'And you live here with your children?' he said. "'In here, in this wilderness? You leave England? You leave everything for this?' His hostess rose and took him over to the far side of the veranda. The beginnings of a garden were spread out before them, with young fruit-trees and flowering shrubs, and bushes of pale pink roses. 
Exuberant tropical growths were interspersed with carefully tended vestiges of plants that had evidently been brought in from a more temperate climate, and had not borne the transition well. Bushes and trees and shrubs spread away for some distance, to where the ground rose in a small hillock, and then fell abruptly into bare hillside. "'In all this garden that you see,' said the Englishwoman, "'there is one tree that is sacred.' "'A tree?' said the Frenchman. "'A tree that we could not grow in England.' The Frenchman followed the direction of her eyes, and saw a tall, bare pole at the summit of the hillock. At the same moment the sun came over the hilltops in a deep orange glow, and a new light stole like magic over the brown landscape. And as if they had timed their arrival to the exact moment of sunburst, three brown-faced boys appeared under the straight bare pole. A cord shivered and flapped, and something ran swiftly up into the air, and swung out in the breeze that blew across the hills, a blue flag with red and white crosses. The three boys bared their heads, and the small girl on the veranda steps stood rigidly to attention. Far away down the hill, a young man, cantering into view round the corner of a dusty road, removed his hat in loyal salutation. "'That is why we live out here,' said the Englishwoman quietly. End of chapter 16